good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and be opening up your Bibles to the book of Corinthians. We'll be starting from there in just a moment, the book of Corinthians. As you turn there, I'd just like to stop and say how thankful I am for us to be able to be gathered together here this morning. Uh, we, As I arose and, and stepped outside, I told Holly a little later, I said, it smells like it's going to rain. And boy, did it. But these are some of the, the in my opinion, my favorite rain, uh, rain clouds are these early spring morning showers and then what we got a little bit after the shower, the, the downpour, but... But it is just such a, a wonderful reminder of the, the power of God and the changing of the seasons, and yet He is still in control. He, he controls all things. Uh, it's just such a wonderful reminder of that this morning. And then, again, I'm just so so thankful that we can all be here and be studying from God's Word and be praising Him together. I uh, want to start off by extending the welcome that has already be extend, been extended to our visitors. We are so thankful that you are here with us. Uh, I'm so thankful to finally put a, a face to a name. I've heard so much about and so thankful to finally be able to, to do so. Uh, but this day, this day is a day in which so many people tend to uh, attribute to something of, of very special priority. Along with Christmas, Easter oftentimes provoke thoughts of the sacrifice of our Lord and our Savior. They promote thoughts of self-reflection on the life that we live. And I really hope that that describes you today. I hope that it describes you, and not just, not just because of this Easter holiday. But I think the Bible teaches us and shows us that, that among, amongst every day we should be considering that, but especially this day because it is Sunday. It is the Lord's Day, the day that we have specifically, that God has specifically set aside as a day where His followers, the uh, Christians, those that follow and, and disciple their lives after His Son, the Christ, will come together and remember the death of His Son. Remember during the communion and the Lord's Supper what was instituted so that we might examine our lives and that we might look forward with hope to that day of His return, as we did so just a minute ago, as Jim led us in, in that communion. And that day is coming. That day when the Lord will return. We don't know when, but we know that we must be ready. But so oftentimes we allow sin to make that day a terrifying reality. The coming of the Lord to those who are faithfully serving Him is a glorious, joyously anticipated day. But until then... Until then, we know that there will be trials and temptations that turn us away, that, that can potentially turn us away from Him. And maybe that's why here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read such an encouraging verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, we read this. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man... And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. That is an easily read passage. That is one of those passages that, that brings a lot of hope with it. It's a passage that we can, we can read very easy, and we can attribute that to our, to our mind, our brain, and we can bring that up when we need it to remember that there is no temptation that, that we will be faced with that is not common to man, and that God will provide a way to endure that temptation. But I want to suggest to you this morning that it is not possible to do the will of God without determining to do the will of God, without determining to do that very thing. We must determine to do so in our minds. And when we do, that doesn't mean that somehow we're going to just be exempted from the lures that seek to draw us away from that very thing. 
When we make that our, our main goal, we make that our, our stance in life, that I am going to serve God, I'm going to do His will, that doesn't just automatically take away temptation. I'm afraid, though, that oftentimes we just we don't take sin seriously enough. Sometimes maybe we think about it as maybe you've read this bumper sticker. I've always found a little bit humorous. It says, lead me not into temptation because I can find it easily on my own. And we smile at that. And when I see that, I always kind of chuckle a little bit. But the thing is, it's a very popular viewpoint that sin is something to be taken lightly. And sometimes it's excused as just simply a mistake that we made. Or sometimes it is blamed on someone else. Maybe we might hear someone say, you can't understand what's going on, what I'm doing. Uh, it's just something that I'm going through. You just never understand it. It was my upbringing. It's the way my parents taught me and my, what my mother and my father did. Sometimes you might even hear people say, That's not, it, it isn't my fault and it's none of your business what I'm doing. You have no right talking to me about this. And that mindset can become prevalent when the church is turned into Nothing more than a salve for a riddled conscience. When we turn the church into something where you just come into the building, sit down, sing some songs, maybe pray a prayer and hear the Bible read, and then you leave justified. Maybe you've heard it said before, usually after someone says or someone does something that is particularly in the world's eyes bad, they'll say, you need to be at church. You need to be at church Sunday morning. Maybe we think to ourselves, well, I got a little bit wild this week, a little bit wild Saturday morning, so I'll go there Sunday morning and I will, I will make things right. For some, church is turned into a form of penitent behavior. And that is just not what the church is. We've talked about that here recently. We've looked at that and saw that the church is, is the body of Christ. The church is the army, is the bride of Christ. And all these things reflect involvement with those that are, that are a part of it. But a lot of times, we look to this, and we ask ourselves this question. This question, am I living righteously? That is to say, am I living right in the, in the eyes of God? And then we begin to answer that question with this. Yes, I am living righteously because I go to church. Or because I, I carry a Bible around with me. But going to church, or carrying a Bible around with you, doesn't make you any more righteous than ordering a Diet Coke makes a Big Mac and fries a healthy meal. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work like that. And I'm not saying that we should forget church. I'm not saying we should forget carrying our Bible. And I'm not saying that a Big Mac is not a good thing to eat every now and then. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. We need to understand something. If we want to live righteously, if we want to live lives that are right and are pleasing in the sight of God, we have to make a conscientious decision to do so. No one has ever done so by accident. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is this need right here. We have the need to say, <clears throat> we have the need to say thanks, but no thanks when it comes to temptations. And as we go throughout each day and we decide each and every day when we wake up, I am going to do what's right. Nevertheless, something is going to arise that will tempt us to do the opposite of that. Now this lesson this morning, I want to go ahead and say, is going to have absolutely no, no bells and whistles, nothing, nothing real thrilling and groundbreaking here. We're not going to reinvent any wheels, but I hope that as you follow along in the Bible, maybe take some notes, I hope that you will see that what we're looking at, we're looking at this morning is very vital to our faith and being faithful to our great God. 
But first, we need to talk for just a moment about what is the source of our temptation. Now, if you were here for our, our morning Bible study, you're, you're going to hear some things that are very familiar. Richard's doing a great job leading us through the book of James. And one of the things that we read about in the book of James is a little bit about God. The Bible tells us that God is pure in nature. He is holy and He is righteous. And in fact, all good and perfect things are of divine nature. So God, God simply cannot be the source of our temptation. But He is... The solution to our sin problem. Turn over with me to the book of James. Read with me James chapter 1. And verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself uh, does not tempt anyone. Then James goes on to say in verses 14 and 15, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What does James tell us? James is saying the responsibility is not on God. When we are tempted, when we face temptations, the source does not come God. The responsibility, the source, is placed squarely and unequivocally on our shoulders. He points back to us. and says, ultimately, it is your own desires that lead you away from God. Whether those desires be physical or they be spiritual, they draw us away from God and therefore into death. The terminology that is used here is oftentimes compared to fishing. I'm sure some of you may have heard it explained that way. Maybe in a Bible class setting, heard someone use fishing terms to describe what James is talking about here. You picture this, it's springtime, we're going to just march right on down the road here to Lake, uh, Lake Mingo. It's springtime and there are the school of fish that are enjoying this warming water. Richard was talking about in class about going crappie fishing and how, how he, they, they did a pretty good job. I, I usually don't catch that many whenever I go crappie fishing. The springtime has come, the fish are enjoying the warm water and you've got some bass that are swimming around over here and over there and one of them spots something in the water and immediately recognizes it as an earthworm. Now I don't understand what, what makes a, a worm look so appealing to a fish. I don't even pretend to understand that, but we'll just say it's because this earth, maybe it was a night crawler. It was plump. It was juicy. It was wriggling around the water, and that bass says, man, that looks good. I think I'll just kind of come over here nonchalantly. I don't want to try and share this meal with anybody. I'm going to come over here, and I'm just going to snatch that up, chomp, get that uh, worm in my mouth, and I'll just get right back in with my buddies. But before he can react, the next thing he knows, he is no longer in the water. He's pulled out of the water. He's on the land. He's flipping around. He's trying to breathe, but he can't. And as he thought he was going to just grab himself a quick bite of lunch, now he is about to be somebody's bite of lunch. And you know what happened here. A fisherman took very special time to take that night crawler and to thread it onto a sharp hook. He cast it out where the fish might see it. He didn't cast out a, a, a bare hook. He didn't cast out an empty hook. You ever try to do that? You ever try to, to maybe, I know I have, run out of bait and think, I'll just throw this hook out there with nothing on it. Maybe I'll, I'll get lucky with one of those little... Popeyes with the, with the feathers on it. Maybe something will bite that. That doesn't work. Didn't cast out a bear hook. He put something on there that was appealing to the fish. And that fisherman does not have the fish's best interest in mind. He doesn't, he's not there to feed the fish. Now, once again, I would have to con- confess, that's usually what I'm doing, is feeding the fish. But this fisherman has a desire not to save the fish, but rather to destroy the fish to take him out of his freedom, to take him out of his water, and to put him into his skillet. And that is what James is talking about here. The same type of strategy that works in fishing works so well for those of us who are human. We have needs. 
And these needs are not evil in and of themselves. Whether it be a need for achievement, or a need for intimacy, a need to feel loved, to have security for our family, maybe financial security. We have needs, and these needs are not evil. God designed us with these needs, and the fact is, God has made ways for us to wholesomely and wholly satisfy those needs. But the problem, as James views it, is there is a fisherman in our lives, the devil, who hooks us with his bait. The problem, maybe, is the need for intimacy. And he dangles that bait out in front of us that appears to offer satisfaction for that need. And he hooks us with maybe a lifetime of relational emptiness. Maybe he hooks us with an unwanted pregnancy or some sort of disease. Maybe he lures us with shortcuts of success for financial freedom. But he hooks us with a criminal record. Or sometimes he hooks us with even more financial burden. Maybe it's through just a little lie. Just just smudge the truth a little bit here. But yet he hooks us in such a way that we eventually become so conscious-seared that as long as I get something out of it, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. The source of temptation is not our God. The source of our temptation is us, and it's us taking Satan's bait that he throws out in the waters. And I imagine this morning that if I tell you there are three paths of which Satan tries to tempt us, three paths of which these temptations come, that you're probably going to know what I'm talking about. When I say there are three avenues that Satan attempts to lure us, that in your minds maybe you're already turning over to 1 John. Chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. You're probably already saying to yourself, I know exactly what you're talking about. Those three things, those three things are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let's start over there for a moment and just read that together. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Helps if I get in the right chapter. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. What's John talking about here? We consider this. What is he discussing? Because we don't really use these words very much anymore. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. We don't really typically talk about that anymore. Maybe if we broke that down into words that we would use today, we would say things like sensualism, materialism, egotism. But even if we broke that down further, and we just got right down to the, to the nitty gritty of it, we would say that we're talking about things such as sex and money and power. These are words that we most commonly use. And here John is saying that these things, these things, if you've fallen in love with these things, you've probably fallen out of love with God. So let's like take a look at each one of them for just a moment. Sensualism, lust of the flesh, as John describes it, points to the fact that the human body has a fleshly appetite that calls for satisfaction. And again, as we've just pointed out, there is nothing wrong with that. God made us that way. He made you and He made me to have certain physical needs and that are morally neutral. Whether it be water or food or rest, whether it be sex or pleasure, these are all natural desires that God has placed on human beings. But you know just as well as I do that these needs can be perverted by preoccupation. The desire for food, a totally natural desire that God placed in human beings that that tells us that if we don't eat, we are going to die. 
But that can be preoccupied or perverted by preoccupation and turn into gluttony. The desire to provide for our family's financial income, as we talked about before, can be perverted into stealing. There are a variety of ways for which these things can be perverted. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be as wise as Solomon to figure out that our culture is obsessed with things sexual in nature. This idea of sensualism. There is an ever more willingness to defend the satisfaction of this natural desire outside of the will of God. The will of God in regards to our our natural sexual desires is summed up quite well in one verse. It can no more clearly be stated than the way it is stated in this one verse. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That that verse makes it absolutely clear that God has created a place for for sex and for sexual relationship, and God holds a judgment for those that are outside of His will on that. And yet non-Christians say any appetite so basic as sex can be satisfied whenever, wherever, with whoever that I choose. And more and more commonly, the outcry is this, it's my body and so it's none of your business. But as Christians, we can't say that. As Christians, we can't say that because we're familiar with passages such as 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20, which tells us, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. Christian discipleship means that they will honor God with his or her body, by, among other things, abstaining from premarital or, or abstinence from extramarital sex. But even among Christians, however, some have seemed to come to believe that this, these sorts of relationships are somehow recreational. We must never lose sight of the fact that it is exclusively com- committed, uh, exclusively communicated, that the sexual relationship is to be one of love and commitment between a husband and wife in the bonds of marriage. And let me tell you that our culture, as, uh, uh, which is sex-saturated, and as saturated as it is, we have to take a stand here. We have to take a stand on this. We must not be afraid as the church, as God's people, to say that sex is a sacred thing. But it is a sacred thing that the world needs to quit encouraging to be satisfied outside of the will of God. And while we may be hesitant, we may be uncomfortable to talk about that, we need to remember what John just said. The lust of the flesh. Indulging these fleshly needs outside of the will of God. Someone involved in that just can't, just can't, be, uh, they just can't love God. If you're involved in that, if you love this lust of the flesh, you can't love God at the same time. The second one that we want to look at is materialism. The, the lust of the eyes. This can be defined very broad, or it can be defined very concise. But about a middle-of-the-road approach is to define as greed. The, the, the desire to have things, and it is aroused by having seen those things. And it really doesn't take much thought uh, to realize that this is an area that is woefully under-considered today. Many don't take this seriously at all. Many would be completely on board with what was just talked about with the lust of the flesh. Those kind of things, the the dangers of pornography, the dangers of sexual relationships outside of marriage, we would voice our concern over those things, maybe very boldly, but become very quiet when we look at texts such as these. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. We just read verse 4. Hebrews 13, now let's read verse 5. 
says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And we read over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, again, speaking of the love of money, saying, some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith, from the faith and pierced themselves with many grieves. Just as Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 19, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, and yet, maybe one of the best descriptions of our day would be enough is just never enough. I think when we think of, well, at least when I, when I think of, of, of this, and I think of greed and, and this uh, uh, attempts to obtain huge amounts of wealth, one person typically comes to my mind right off the bat. That is our president, Donald Trump. He was once quoted as saying, this has been a while back, I'll give this to him, that he, maybe, he's, maybe he's grown from this, but he was once quoted as saying, uh, saying this, and while I can't honestly say I need an 80-foot living room, I sure do get a kick out of having one. This sort of, this sort of mentality <clears throat> uh, that, that carries with this idea of just getting anything that we can and grabbing that thing up. You know, from time to time we hear about people who gamble all of their money away. They gamble all their family's money away. And for what? Well, oftentimes hear these stories and they, they, they very rarely end in a happy ending. They oftentimes are stories of tragedy with the destruction of the family, it falling apart because trust has been destroyed and financial ruin has been brought upon them. Sometimes with destruction of the gambler who feels they have gotten in over their heads. And there's no other way out than to take their own life. I mean, we think about this and we wonder, how could anyone be that materialistic? How could anyone be that greedy? But yet, when we look at the world, when we look at, at, at those that are around us that we know, sometimes I am more and more convinced that if we could promise them something, maybe it would be a desire of a, a, a really nice car or a huge house, there is something we could promise them, well, the thought of going to hell, as long as I attain those things, that's, that's a thought that I can, I can almost stand to bear. But what about within the Christian community? If we could be guaranteed that we would maybe win the Powerball, and we'll say it's, it's $100 million. I don't, I don't know what the Powerball is, but say it's $100 million, and you are guaranteed you could win that Powerball, or you can be guaranteed that you would go to heaven. How would we view, how would we view that? What decision would we make? We can have a pretty good idea of what many Americans might choose, but what about the members of the church? What about us? The word, <coughs> the word here is trying to teach a lesson. And that lesson is that the burden of stuff, whether that stuff be money or houses or fame, the burden of stuff is a heavy burden, and it's a heavier burden than anyone can ever drag into heaven. The world of money and the things that it can buy and the things that it can do, make no mistake, can be wonderful. We talked about that again this morning. But only if we receive them as a gift from God. And we set them aside to His glory and we hold on to them with a very light grip. The third thing that John talks about here is this pride of life. You have the three things that John brings up. The flesh, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. When we get to the pride of life, this is probably one of the hardest to define. Some newer translations refer to this as the boasting of what one has and does. That is, that is egotism. And I'm not positive exactly, exactly what John had in mind when he penned this. Some say that it's arrogance because of what they have. 
My stuff is greater than your stuff, so therefore I am greater than you. Others say it is arrogance because what has, what has been done. I, I've done things that are greater than you, so that makes me greater than you. But the common theme in this is arrogance and power. For some reason, my ego has been stroked. And I believe that I am better than you, and I'm going to act accordingly to that thought. I love this quote by a man named Stephen Bedale. He said, The pride of life will be reflected in whatever status symbol is important to me or seems to define my identity. Whether I define myself in terms of my degrees or the reputation of my church or business or my annual income or my expensive car or house in my boasting, I show myself a pompous fool who's deceived no one. When we hear that, we think that's some really strong language right there. A pompous fool. But I want to suggest it's the exact same language of Luke chapter 12 when the Lord told a story about a man who had certainly made a great living but he had not made a life. When I think of the pride of life, I think of someone who seeks a vantage point in which they can look down on others and maybe use them or hurt them or manipulate them in some way. An employer who harasses their employees doesn't treat them fairly because they are beneath them. A teacher who abuses their students. Maybe even a church leader who bullies others to maintain their perceived authority. And that's what it is. It's people with perceived position. I think I am greater, therefore I am. You know what that is? That's petty. And that's racist. And that's mean. And that's completely unchristlike. Or as John says, if you're involved in any of these things, you just don't love God the way that you should. But if this is the three paths for which Satan, for which Satan tempts us, let's wrap all this up. Let's wrap all this up with some points on how we can overcome those temptations. Because temptation always needs a partner to do its destructive work. The old phrase, it takes two to tango, is very true with temptation. It it will always be there as well. The Lord, the Lord and His temptation in the wilderness. That should be a vivid reminder to us that temptation and sin are two very different things. Listen to the quote, this quote here. It says, Temptation is not a sin. Temptation is a call to battle. That's exactly what the Lord did when He was in the wilderness. We need to understand that the Lord did not sin when He was tempted. The Lord went to battle against that temptation. So let's consider these few points and the lesson will be yours. The first one I want to think about is this. We need to not be surprised by temptation. Nobody, nobody is exempt from temptation. Not even Christ. And let me tell you again, nobody is invincible to temptation either. Don't be discouraged when temptation falls upon 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 you. That just means that you are a human being. You know, the other day we saw a video of 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 a bunch of little kids that were running and screaming and crying. And what is the individually, not all together? When they come and ask them, "What is the matter?" All of them all respond the same thing: "I have a shadow." That shadow was going to somehow get me. And every time where they turned, that shadow was there. And they were fearful almost for their lives of their shadows. And we look at that and we say, that's silly. Because they're humans. And because there is a sun. And because of that light source is going to throw a shadow. That is silly to be afraid of that. But you know the same thing that's silly? Is to expect that we will never be tempted. We are humans. It is going to happen. In fact, probably one of the most effective tools that Satan has... And his arsenal is to deceive us into thinking that we are not vulnerable 
to temptation. Again, you remember 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. It said, no temptation has fallen upon you that is not uncommon to man. You know what all that means. That means you are vulnerable to temptation. And so am I. And you know what? My, my vulnerability, my Achilles heel, so to speak, it may not be the same as yours. But we both have them. We both have areas that we are vulnerable in to temptation. And so when it falls upon us, we should not be surprised by it at all. Number two, we need to remember that there is power in the Word and there is power in prayer. And I know I've made this point before and sometimes we, we get in the mindset of saying, yeah, we, we know that. Let's, let's just kind of, let's move on to point number three. We know there's power of the Word. And I want to think about this just for a moment. It is not coincidental that when Jesus was tempted by the devil, when Jesus responded to the lure of the devil, He did so by having some form of understanding of what God's will was for His life. He didn't stand ready to go toe-to-toe with Satan. You ever notice that? He never even gave Satan the opportunity to get to the, to, for it to get to that point. See, sometimes we view the Bible, we view the Word of God as our go-to when we are entering into temptation. When we enter into temptation now, we're going to go see what the Bible says about that. But I want to say just for a moment, I want to say that that is a terrible idea. Because most likely, and now again, I'm saying most likely, not every time, but most likely, when we do that, at that point, we are very close, we are very dangerously in the position of not seeking to know what God's will is, but rather seeking to justify our attempts to satisfy our needs. If I am strongly tempted by sexual desires, you better believe that I need to know God's will for me in that area before the temptation comes along. Otherwise, instead of, instead of seeking, uh, as I seek to it, I won't be saying, what does the Bible say about this? I might be saying to myself, how can I get away with this? How can I justify what I want to do? And also, all too often, the Bible is treated as if it were some sort of, of magic charm. Something that if we just we're going to take out there and dangle it in front of Satan, he is going to recoil in shock. He is going to run from us in fear. But on the contrary, on the contrary, he responded to Jesus with knowledge. The devil knows God's word. He knows what it says, and he will try his very best to make you think that he comes from truth. So we must be firmly grounded in the scripture so that when time comes that we know what is clearly right, and what is clearly wrong. And let me say this. And I say this to all of us, but particularly to our, our, our young ones here this morning. If we wait, if we wait until we are in the middle of a problem, if we wait till that point to make our mind up about what we are going to do morally, whether we're going to do what's right or not, then we're very likely going to make the wrong choice. It's too late at that point. And very, very seldom will we do what's right. Those battles that we might enter into, those battles are won long time before we ever enter into the heat of war. So we need to remember that there is power in the Word and there is power in prayer. We also need to remember, number three, that we should just avoid people and we should avoid places that are spiritually unhealthy. You know, if we could do that, if we could really do that, if we could avoid people in places that are spiritually unhealthy, I'm convinced that maybe about 90% of our problems are going to go away, are going to disappear along this line. We need to avoid these places. And now certainly temptation can come upon us anywhere. 
Maybe we're walking down the aisle at Lowe's and we see that thing and go, man, I would really like to have that. It would be so easy. Nobody would even know. I just slide, I could slide that in my pocket and walk right on out the door. Certainly temptation can come upon us. And even though my wife might disagree, there isn't anything spiritually unhealthy about Lowe's. But isn't it so that each and every one of us, each and every one of us has the ability to rationalize the reasons for being with people or being in places that we just really have no business being in the first place. So here's maybe someone who provokes you. They provoke you to do and to say things that you just know you shouldn't do, you know you shouldn't say, but yet you just continually surround yourself with that person. Maybe it's a person who has the knack of really getting into mischief. And because they're always looking for an accomplice, we mistake that as friendship. Or maybe it's a co-worker that makes advances towards you. And we sure like feeling wanted. And we have a desire, we have a need to have intimacy. Maybe things just haven't been going well at home. Or maybe something like this. Maybe it's a group that gets together and plays a sport. Maybe it's a basketball or a softball team. But this group, if, if you want to fit in with this group, you're not going to unless you go out drinking with them. You know, nobody has to tell you in any one of these situations or a thousand others, no one has to tell you what the right thing to do is. But at some point, we do have to decide how serious are we about living our Christian faith. Now, sometimes we answer that by saying this, but hey, hey, I really, really want this. You know what? I, I recognize that. But there are many things in this life that we want that are not something that we need. So we need to remember to try and avoid people in places that are spiritually unhealthy. We also need to remember the consequences of our behavior. We know that the book of Romans tells us that the product of sin, the consequence of sin, is death. That's a long-term product for a lot of us in our minds. There's, there's death that has come, very likely physical death that might come from a bad choice, but spiritual death, but that's, that's something that, i, I got time. I can take care of that. I don't, the Lord might not come for 20 more years, 30 more years, another century. i got time. That's long term. But you know there are short term effects to our behavior as well. There are short term consequences as well. If you don't believe that, turn over to the book of 1 Samuel and read the story of David sometime. And read about how that baby died. It was born to him in Bathsheba. Read about the regret and the sorrow that David felt. Read about his reputation, not for his lifetime or the lifetime of his children, but for all lifetime, has been stained, has been marred because he didn't consider the consequences of his actions. How many people likewise have lost their family, have tarnished their reputation, have been burdened with enormous guilt all because they didn't listen to that old saying that says sin always takes you farther than you want to go, costs more than you intended to pay, and keeps you longer than you intended to stay. We need to remember there are consequences to our behavior. And lastly, we need to think about the positive side of temptation. This last point, you might think, what can there possibly be that is positive about temptation? But as we read in class last week, over in James chapter 1, that we were told to rejoice in trials, rejoice in temptations. Because if you take temptation seriously, if you're serious about temptation, you will find that temptation drives you closer to the Father. 
If you take the lures and the treachery of the devil seriously, it will cause you to turn to the one safe place in all of existence. One more time, let's turn over to the book of James. But this time, turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 7, says this, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But then notice the beginning of verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If we take it seriously, we draw closer to God, and God draws closer to us. Because God designed the Christian life. And He designed it to be characterized by love and joy and peace. And all of, you remember over in Galatians chapter 5, those fruits of the Spirit? And according to Galatians chapter 5, the very text that talks about that fruit of the Spirit, Paul went on to describe, he went on to say that it cannot peaceably coexist with the works of the flesh. And then he described the very things in which John just got through talking about. Sexual immorality, selfish ambition, arrogance. These things destroy good character and they destroy relationships. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says that those who belong to Christ, in verse 24, he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. The question this morning is this. Have you? Open your songbooks. Just a moment, we're going to be singing the song that was announced. Number 626. It is well with my soul. That song, as we sing just in just a moment, will be the song of invitation. The invitation is to do just what John has talked about. To illustrate to everyone here, to illustrate to everyone that you know, everyone that loves you, that you really do love God more than this world. You really do love God more than those things that are antagonistic to Him. And so if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, and by that I mean you have not been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, you can do that this morning. If you have done that but you have not been faithful to Him, you can come home this morning. I would encourage you to think about these things. And if we can help you in any such way, please let it be known. Come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.